Today, I really want to share with you an approach to understanding ourselves and guiding ourselves toward health that I am so excited about. I think it has great potential to help us in our human formation as Catholics. You and I, we're together in this great adventure, in this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. We are journeying together. I am really happy to be able to spend this time with you. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic. Together, we take on the tough topics that matter to you. We bring the best of psychology, we bring the best of human formation, we harmonize it with what we know to be true by divine revelation. We harmonize it with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. Interior Integration for Catholics, this podcast, it's part of our broader outreach at Souls and Hearts. Souls and Hearts brings the best of psychology and human formation grounded in a Catholic understanding of the human person to you and to the rest of the world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. We are continuing our series on how the best of secular psychological approaches define mental health and psychological well-being. We started this series with episode 89 on polyvagal theory, and then we covered positive psychology, psychodynamic psychotherapy, and internal family systems in episode 90. Today's episode, number 92, is entitled, Understanding and Healing Your Mind Through IPNB. It's released on April 4th, 2022, and we are going to unpack what IPNB is, what it says about our human condition. And I will share with you an exchange I recently had with the founder of IPNB, neuropsychiatrist Dr. Dan Siegel, who brought this whole integrative framework into being. I had an exchange with him about whether IPNB can be reconciled with Catholicism. So stay with me for a really interesting deep dive into this fascinating way of understanding ourselves and others. Well, let's start today by understanding what IPNB is. IPNB, that's that's an acronym. It's short for Interpersonal Neurobiology interpersonal neurobiology. Let's break the name down. Interpersonal neurobiology. What are we talking about? Well, inter means between us or among us. It implies a relationship. This is a relational model. And it's not just between you and me, but also between you and you, the inner relationships within you. And it's also about me and me, the inner relationships within me. So that's the inter part and the personal part. So interpersonal, it's very relational. It's very much about human beings connecting, connecting inside and connecting with each other. IPNB is all about the way that your deep inner experiences connect with my deep inner experiences. Right, so that's the interpersonal part of it. Neurobiology, let's talk about this. It's not just the specific discipline or field of neurobiology, but it deals with all branches of that scientifically study how human development takes place and how we can promote well-being in our lives. Neurobiology brings in all the embodied physical dimensions of our existence. It brings in our bodies, our brains, the whole nervous system, all of our embodied biological being. That's what the neurobiology part refers to. So interpersonal neurobiology or IPNB works to be a holistic approach to the human person. 
IPNB, or interpersonal neurobiology, was developed in the 1990s by neuropsychologist Daniel J. Siegel. And he brought together, and this, and this is so fascinating, the way he went about this, because he brought together more than 40 professionals, more than 40 experts from a wide range of scientific disciplines to discuss and demonstrate how the mind, brain, and relationships integrate to influence and change each other. That was what was so unique. Instead of being siloed just in his own academic department in neuropsychiatry, Daniel Siegel brought together all these people from all these disciplines to sit and discuss, to exchange perspectives and ways of understanding all these questions about the human mind, about our development, all kinds of things, but with a particular focus on how the mind, the brain, and relationships How do our relationships impact our mind? What's the mind-brain connection? What's the connection between the brain and our relationships? These were the kinds of questions they were asking and trying to answer. Five of them really seemed to stand out to me. First question, what is the human mind? Second question, how does the human mind develop? Third, what does the human mind look like when it's doing really, really well, when it's functioning optimally? Fourth, how can we encourage, nurture, and cultivate a healthy, strong mind? And fifth, how can we take what we've learned about the mind and find practical applications that make a real difference in our daily lives? Guidance for how to live our lives, pointers for what we may need to change in our thinking and in our behavior to help us live more fully. And Dan Siegel, he's very practical. This is not some academic ivory tower, pie-in-the-sky speculation that he's doing. He's an actual clinician. He works with real people with real problems. He really wants IPNB to bring healing, growth, and well-being to people. And I really like that. I'm really into that. So let's talk a little bit about what IPNB is not. First of all, it's not a therapy. It's not a way of doing therapy. Rather, it's a way of understanding that can help inform different schools of therapy. So it's not a particular therapy on, on itself, but it can, it can give guidance and it, and it can help different forms of psychotherapy, different schools of psychotherapy to understand more deeply what's going on within the human person. Secondly, IPNB, interpersonal neurobiology, it's not a discipline itself. It's not a specific branch of knowledge. It's not gonna have its own department in a university. Rather, IPNB is a framework that draws on all the different disciplines that have a rigorous and structured approach to studying things. And these are not just scientific disciplines. All these disciplines have a place in the framework. And that framework is what's called a consilient framework. Now, what is consilience? This is a term coined by E.O. Wilson. And consilience means assessing the universal findings discovered and recognized as real or true across fields and disciplines. So consilience is all about what are the findings that hold to be true from one discipline to another discipline to another discipline across those disciplines, universal findings that are replicated across different disciplines. And the different fields that have contributed to interpersonal neurobiology, it's quite impressive. I'm just going to list some of them in alphabetical order. Anthropology, art, 
biology. This includes developmental biology, evolutionary biology, genetics, zoology, chemistry, cognitive science, computer science, the contemplative traditions, developmental psychopathology, liberal arts, linguistics, neuroscience, including affective neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience, developmental neuroscience, and social neuroscience, mathematics, medicine, mental health, music, physics, poetry, psychiatry, and psychology. Lots of different sub-branches of psychology too. Cognitive psychology, developmental, evolutionary, experimental, the psychology of religion, social psychology, attachment theory, and memory, as well as sociology and systems theory. That includes chaos theory and complexity theory. All of these disciplines, all of these fields of inquiry contribute to interpersonal neurobiology. And IPNB seeks a common language for these disciplines to be able to share and discuss about these big topics, the ones I talked about before. What is the human mind? How does the mind develop? What does the human mind look like when it's doing really, really well? How can we encourage, nurture, and cultivate a strong, healthy mind? And how can we take what we've learned about the mind and find practical applications that make a real difference in daily life? Those are the questions. These are the disciplines. Interpersonal Neurobiology, IPNB, brings it all together to see what are the commonalities. IPNB is going for that big picture. And IPNB also emphasizes a need for humility and openness in the work. So now I've given you enough of a background to give you the technical definition of interpersonal neurobiology. Interpersonal neurobiology is a consilient field that embraces all branches of science and now other disciplined ways of understanding reality, such as contemplative traditions and liberal arts, as it seeks the common universal findings across independent ways of knowing in order to expand our understanding of the mind and well-being. And that, that, dear listener, that is why it's included in this series on well-being, on mental health, because it is very, very focused, not on correcting psychopathology primarily, but on optimizing health. How do we understand that in the natural realm? So let's get to some of these questions, right? First of all, what is the human mind? If we want a strong, healthy, ordered mind, it helps to know what the mind actually is. If we want mental well-being, it's really valuable to slow down and ask the question, what is the human mind? So a central question for IPNB from its very founding and to this present day is, what is the human mind? The mind in the psychological literature is rarely defined. And you all know if you listen to me how important definitions are. I harp about this all the time. So I really love it that Dan Siegel started by asking the question, what is the human mind? The mind is often discussed, but it's rarely defined. And when the mind is defined, it's most often defined as the output of the brain. This goes all the way back to Hippocrates. Our mind comes only from our brain. And it was echoed in the late 19th century by William James. He's a famous American psychologist who wrote a very highly influential book in 1890 called The Principles of Psychology. And what James argued was that the mind is essentially just the product of the brain. The activity of the brain generates the activity of the mind. So the mind's activity is understood to be solely the product of the brain's activity. But that's been challenged since then. American neuropsychologist, neurobiologist, and Nobel laureate Roger Sperry 
made the assertion that mental processes cannot be reduced to brain mechanisms. Even if mental processes are dependent on brain processes, that doesn't make them the same thing. And even though the mind might depend on the activity of brain cells, the firing of neurons in the brain, the mind is not the same thing as neuron firing. The mind is not the brain, and it's not just the products of nervous system activity. So what is the mind? What does Daniel Siegel say the mind is? The mind is a term that at minimum includes what we're familiar with when we think of mind, right? Mental activity that includes consciousness and emotions and mood and thinking and information and problem solving and decision making and memory and narrative and meaning making and intention and belief and hope and attitudes and assumptions and desires and longings and dreams and our subjective feeling of being alive. All of those are included in the mind. All of these mental activities, which are beautiful, which are powerful descriptions of what people mean when they say mind, we include them all. The mind also constructs its own experience of reality. This is a critical point. The mind, according to IPNB, emanates from interactions within the brain. So there's the neurobiology part of it, the brain, the nervous system, the body, But the mind is not just the product of neurobiology. Also, there's the interpersonal aspect. The mind also radiates from our internal relationships within ourselves and our relationships with other people. There is the interpersonal part of interpersonal neurobiology. The mind encompasses both the embodied brain and our relationships. It's really important in interpersonal neurobiology. So let's get to the actual definition of mind. I'm taking this straight from page 507 of Dan Siegel's book, The Developing Mind, Third Edition. The mind is a process that includes at least four fundamental aspects. One, personal subjective experience. Two, awareness. Three, information processing and four, a regulatory function that is an emergent, self-organizing, embodied, and relational process of the extended nervous system and relationships. This facet of a core aspect of mind offers a working definition of mind as an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. In this perspective, The brain's activities are an important part of mind, but mind is broader than the brain and bigger than the individual body. The mind is fully embodied and fully relational, end quote. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot. All right, let's let's break this down, all right? So let's start with the beginning here. The mind is a process. In IPNB, the mind is a process. The mind is not so much a thing as it is a process, the activity within us that regulates the flow of both energy and information through the neurocircuitry of the brain, which is then shared and regulated between people through engagement, connection, and communication. Right, so there's a lot here. The mind is a process, and it's got these four facets. There's personal subjective experience. This is the felt texture of life, according to Dan Siegel. I just love that quote, the felt texture of life. That's our personal and subjective experience. It's also our awareness, our consciousness. 
It's also our information processing. And that information processing can be conscious or not conscious. And this fourth one may be the most difficult one, that the mind has this aspect, this aspect of being the emergent, self-organizing, embodied, and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And that flow happens within, within our bodies, and also between, between us and other people. So the mind isn't just what happens in our cranium, right, in our skull. The mind is bigger than that. The mind reaches out relationally and connects with other people. And there's this flow of energy and information, which is really central to understanding the way that Siegel and IPNB look at the mind. And if you don't understand all of this in the first go-round, that's okay. You don't need to understand it all. There's some real complexity here. The critical thing to remember today about your mind, for our purposes, is that your mind can change your brain. And your mind can be changed by your brain. And your mind can change your relationships and your mind can be changed by your relationships. And your brain also can be changed by your relationships. All of these features, mind, brain, and relationships, affect each other. There's all these different causal links. And in IPNB, our attachment relationship experiences shape the structures in the brain that correlate with key features of our inner and intermind as we carry these neuroplastic changes forward in life. This is what Dan Siegel says. Our attachment relationships impact the structure and functioning of our brain. They impact the structure and functioning of our minds. So we can be open to new growth and learning. There's neuroplasticity. Our brains are not locked in to some sort of deterministic trajectory. Our relational experiences, our attachments to other people shape our internal world and shape our minds. Secure, healthy relationships can heal your mind and more than that, they can heal your brain. You can see this in the neuroelectric firing and the neurochemical activity in the brain. You can see this in neurotransmitter levels. You can see it in the anatomy of the brain. So this is not just wishful thinking. This is actually real. Risa Miller, in her 2016 article entitled Neuro Interpersonal Neurobiology, Applications for the Counseling Profession, said, quote, The mind can influence the brain in relationships. Consistent with characteristics of a complex system, the mind both emerges from and in turn influences the functioning of the brain and relationships. How one focuses attention affects neural structure and function. Furthermore, through processes not yet fully understood, perhaps through resonance circuitry or mirror neurons, the mental processes of one person can influence the mental processes of another person. So our minds can mutually and reciprocally impact each other. And there's ways to describe this that we can actually observe in the laboratory, not just through behavior, but also through neurobiology. So let's move to what does health look like from an IPNB perspective? In IPNB, there's this concept of the triangle of well-being. And I want you to imagine a triangle with three vertices or three corners, right? That's what triangles have, three vertices, three corners. One vertex is the brain, a second vertex is the mind, 
And the third vertex is relationship. So we have a triangle. We have at the top where the point is we have relationship and at another corner we have the brain and another corner we have the mind. Now the mind is what we've been covering. I've talked a lot about the mind, so I'm not going to review that right now. The brain is the embodied mechanism of energy and information flow. It's the organ within us that regulates information and energy flow. So the formal definition is that the brain is viewed as the extended nervous system distributed throughout the entire body and intimately interwoven with the physiology of the body as a whole. It is the embodied neural mechanism that shapes the flow of energy and information. So according to the way that IPNB defines the brain, it's not just the gray matter inside our skulls, but it's our whole nervous system. And this is really important because in the last 10 years or so, we've learned a lot more about the nervous system. Like, for example, did you know that there are several hundred million neurons, brain cells, in your gut? In fact, in your gut, we have what's called the enteric nervous system, which is often referred to as our body's second brain. There are hundreds of millions of neurons connecting the brain to our enteric nervous system. It's the part of our nervous system that controls our gastrointestinal tract, right? Our GI system. There's all these neurons that are tasked with controlling everything from our esophagus, you know, which connects our mouths to our stomachs, all the way through our anus. All of that's controlled by the enteric nervous system, which isn't located in our head. It's actually in our gut. And there's all kinds of other things that we don't understand about that yet. So there is a way of knowing things, in a sense, in our guts, right? So the brain, when we talk about that from an IPNB perspective, includes the entire nervous system. So we've got the mind and the brain, and I'm going to talk a lot about relationships from an IPNB perspective right now. The way that relationships are considered within IPNB is through the sharing of energy and information flow between people. Energy and information are shared in relationships. And when we are integrated, right, there is a differentiation and a linkage of parts in a system. So within the relationship, we need to be able to resonate that's different than mirroring. It's also not about giving up your individual needs or your sense of, of differentiation. It's not about losing yourself in relationship. Integration is different. It's about being separate but near, connected. And within IPNB, there's what's called the PART model of verbal and nonverbal relationships. And PART is an acronym. Dan Siegel is huge about acronyms. PART model stands for Presence, Attunement, Resonance, and trust. Presence, attunement, resonance, and trust. This is what's important in relationships. So let's go through these one at a time. We'll start with presence. Presence. There's an openness. There's an awareness of the present moment experience of relating. Presence is the portal to integration. It's an open, receptive awareness of the unfolding of the moment-to-moment experience in relationships. The opposite of presence would be this sort of unintentional kind of wandering away from another person, not registering kind of on your radar. That's not presence. What presence is, is this openness and awareness of the present moment experience of connection. That's presence. Second thing, attunement. This is the focus of attention being on the internal world of myself or the other person. 
attunement. So there can be internal attunement, which is focusing on my internal world, what's going on within me. And then there's interpersonal attunement, the focusing of my attention on the internal world of another person. This is where I focus on your internal world. If a parent is attuned to the child's mind, you get much better outcomes than if the parent is just reacting to the child's behavior. Mirror neurons may be activated in attunement. So that's attunement. We have presence, we have attunement. The R in the part model is resonance. And resonance is about being shaped by another person, being open to another person, and having that person have an impact on you. The interpersonal attunement from the A part that we just talked about allows for two individuals to resonate with each other, to have this deeper sense of connection, of being with each other. And then Dan Siegel has this great way of expressing it. I really like it. He says, it's for one person to feel felt by another person. So that there's this process of feeling felt. And as the two people are resonating, feeling felt by one another, joined in relationship, they are still separate. They're not fused. There's no loss of individual identity. You are still you. I am still me when we are in relationship. And this is really important that the individual differentiated nature of each person is not lost. So two tuning forks, think of them at the same frequency, right? If one is struck and starts to resonate and it's placed near enough to the other, the other will resonate. But they don't become one tuning fork. They don't become fused. So that's the R in the part model of verbal and nonverbal relationships. The last one, the T, is trust. A deep sense of openness and reliability. States of safety foster trust. And trust creates a sense of receptivity. When that happens, the social engagement system is turned on. We talked about this in episode 89 in polyvagal theory, when, when we're in that ventral vagal state. Integration allows us to differentiate streams of energy, freeing us from default mode processing that can dominate our experience in the moment. So this opens up, in other words, new ways of thinking, new ways of imagining, new ways of considering, really allows us to use our faculty of imagination. So that's the part model. Presence, attunement, resonance, and trust. And when we're connected, there is this mutual resonance that occurs between two people. It leads to attunement. It leads to the sense of a we, of a we together. Now, of course, in close relationships, ruptures are inevitable. And they can be thought of as opportunities for repair that can lead to the deepening of connection. So, that's the part model. All about how people relate. Presence, attunement, resonance, and trust. Now, I want to talk about four critical concepts in IPNB. I want to talk about empathy, compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. These are central constructs within IPNB. And it's another reason why I like IPNB so much. They deal with these really important issues. Empathy. Empathy in IPNB has many facets. It includes feeling the feelings of another person. It includes perspective taking. It includes a cognitive understanding. Empathy is the capacity to make a map of the other person's mental state 
that includes at least these five functions. So for empathy, we need at least these five functions. One, emotional resonance. Two, perspective taking. Three, empathetic understanding. Four, empathetic joy. And five, empathetic concern. Emotional resonance, perspective taking, empathetic understanding, empathetic joy, and empathetic concern. We be, we're able to share these things. We're able to share understanding. We're able to understand the perspective of another person. We can share in their joy and we can share in their concerns or in their sorrows. Empathy is a requirement for compassion. And integration allows for those empathetic connections to be harnessed without us losing our sense of self, without us losing differentiation and fusing with the other person's experience. All right, so the first critical concept in IPNB, empathy, that opens the door to the second one, which is compassion. Compassion is the way in which we perceive the suffering of another and how we imagine we can help, and then to take action to alleviate the suffering, right? Compassion, we'll give you the formal definition now. The compassion is the capacity to sense suffering, to imagine what could be done to reduce that suffering, and to take effective action for that purpose. Compassion can be directed towards one's own inner experience, sometimes called self-compassion, as well as toward others in what is sometimes called other-directed compassion. The two directions in the flow of compassion can be called inner compassion and intercompassion. That to me is just fascinating that we're starting to talk about essentially loving each other. I just really, really like it when a secular approach to psychology brings in these questions of what it means to love each other, right? So empathy, compassion, and then kindness, right? Kindness meaning acting with no expectation of getting something in return. Honoring and supporting one another's vulnerabilities. And that starts to sound a lot like the Christian concept of charity. right? And then forgiveness. I'm not going to dwell a lot on this last one except to give you a really great quote by Dan Siegel where he says, Forgiveness can be thought of as giving up all hope for a better past. Giving up all hope for a better past, right? One of the things we'll talk about when we get into the different domains of integration is temporal integration, where we're able to leave the past in the past, to live in the present, not to be sucked into the future, but to be in the now. Forgiveness requires us to not dwell on how the past shoulda, woulda, coulda been different. Right, so the brain, the mind, relationships are all critical elements of the triangle of well-being and they all impact each other in these reciprocal ways. There's all kinds of different causal influences in the way that the brain, mind, and our relationships impact each other. So let's move on to another major question, another major issue within IPNB, and that is attachments. It very much brings in attachment theory. 
Daniel Siegel in The Developing Mind says this, quote, Attachment at its core is based on parental sensitivity and responsivity to the child's signals, which allow for collaborative parent-child communication. So what he's saying there is that the parent has to be able to tune, to pick up on, to be sensitive to the child's signals, and to be able to understand what's going on beneath just the level of behavior, what's going on in the child's mind. So next he says, contingent communication gives rise to secure attachment and it is characterized by a collaborative give and take of signals between members of the pair. And so there's this give and take between the parent and the child. There's this way of understanding each other. And contingent communication relies on the alignment of internal experience or states of mind between the child and the caregiver. So in other words, the, the parent needs to be able to enter into the child's internal world in order for there to be secure attachment. He goes on, this mutually sharing, mutually influencing set of interactions, this emotional attunement or mental state resonance is the essence of healthy, secure attachment. Remember, neural networks are activated and shaped by these relational experiences. Our relational experiences reshape not only our minds, but our brains. So Siegel has these four S's of building a secure attachment. Four words, they all start with S, they're called the four S's. So the four S's of building a secure attachment are feeling seen, safe, soothed, and secure. Feeling seen, let's start with that one. I feel that my needs are being accurately perceived by the other person. And the other person is seeing my mind, is able to connect with my mind beneath my behavior. Not just my behavior, not just what I do, but what's going on behind that behavior. That's all part of being seen. Second one, safe, feeling safe. I feel protected from harm. I feel protected from danger. I have a sense of security. The other person is not a source of fear. Safety. The third one, feeling soothed. I can be reliably comforted and calmed by the other person when I'm in distress. Ruptures between me and the other person can be readily repaired. That's all about feeling soothed. And the fourth is feeling secure. I can go back when I need to to the other person to be my secure base. So if I get kind of nervous, if I get a little anxious, if I start feeling a little destabilized, I can go back to the person and I can can reconnect when I need to. Okay, so that's secure attachment. So now all of this has been building up to the big question. So all of this is going back to the big question. What is the basis for health? What is the basis for our mental well-being? What is it? the integration of the mind. Daniel Siegel proposed that the integration of the mind is the basis for health. And those of you that have been following me for a long time know that I made this argument way back in episode 15 of this podcast, long before I was familiar with IPNB. That idea, that integration of the mind is the basis for mental health, for for psychological well-being, that's supported by about 20 years of research now. And Risa Miller is going to help us to break this down, right? She says, mental well-being, 
from an IPNB perspective, is defined in terms of integration. We have these functionally distinct components within the complex mind system that differentiate. In other words, they specialize. Each component of our mind has a unique role within the system. And every component of our mind then links with other components of our mind to form the greater whole. They're not blended together, right? There's a difference between a fruit salad and a fruit smoothie, right? Risa Miller and many other people within IPNB, including Dan Siegel, use this distinction of a fruit smoothie versus a fruit salad to help us understand what the difference is when something is integrated versus when something is homogenized, right? Each ingredient in a fruit salad maintains its own unique quality. Each, un- each ingredient in a fruit salad is differentiated, but it's also linked to all the other pieces of fruit in the fruit salad to make something that's new, something that's more complex, right? There's this integration in a fruit salad, and in the experience of eating fruit salad, you get something that's greater than just the sum of its parts, Optimal organization in the mind depends on linking differentiated parts of the mind in integration. You don't have those differences among those parts of the mind disappear. That's not homogenization. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for coherence, not homogenization. So integration is defined as the linkage of these differentiated elements. Right? In other words, the different pieces of our mind, the different pieces of our fruit salad, the different little fruits in our fruit salad, they're in relationship with each other. They're not fusing and losing their identity, right? So all of our emotions and all of our thoughts and all of our assumptions and all of our beliefs and all the neurochemical activity and all of the things that go on in our internal experience are allowed to, to be what they are, but they're linked with each other in a coherent way. Integration is both a process and a structural dimension, right? So there's a process of integration, but it's also a state of being. And you can see the integration in the functional and anatomic studies of the nervous system. Again, this can be observed under the microscope, integration. You can see it actually. Now, when the mind is not working well, if it's not self-organizing in a good way, if it's not governing itself very well, it veers to one of two outcomes, either rigidity or chaos. We want to be in this river of integration, as Dan Siegel tells us, between one shore, which is rigidity, and the other shore, which is chaos. When we get rigid, everything seems predictable. We get this dorsal vagal shutdown, this freezing, this numbing out, like in dissociation. We discussed this at some length in episode 89 on polyvagal theory. This leads to rigidity. An extreme example would be like hysterical paralysis, where you'd actually get rigidity literally, right? Or another example would be a deep major depression. People just harden into that depression, On the other hand, on the other shore, we have chaos. And that's where everything seems completely unpredictable. That's where you get like PTSD symptoms, right? Flashbacks and nightmares, panic attacks. Those are all ways that we can get out of kilter in our minds that go to the chaos side of things. And some psychiatric conditions have both. For example, bipolar disorder, right? 
The depressive episode has the rigidity, but the manic episode has the chaos. Daniel Siegel argues that every symptom of every disorder of the DSM-5 can be framed in terms of chaos or rigidity. And he goes so far as to say, and I think it's a really fascinating idea, quote, human suffering can be summed up in chaos and rigidity, end quote. We find health in internal integration where there is neither chaos nor rigidity. So when your mind is functioning well, when your mind has this harmony, when it has this integration, you find what Dan Siegel calls the FACES flow. And that's another of his acronyms, FACES. Optimal self-organization involves the integration of the elements of the system leading to harmony. That's a FACES flow. And that's when individuals are operating at greater levels of integration. They're more open to possibilities they're more flexible in response to their natural proclivities. That's the faces flow. And so in the faces flow, your mind is flexible. That's the F. Adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. That's what mental health looks like. That's what the flow looks like when you are in this river of integration, not chaotic, not rigid, but flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Flexible. Your mind can think outside the box. You can be innovative. You can come up with new and original ideas, new solutions to problems. Your mind can be imaginative. You can be creative. There's flexibility, right? Flexible. Adaptive. Your mind can adjust to new situations. It can change courses needed. You can roll with the punches. You can handle the various challenges and demands that life throws at you. That's the adaptive aspect of the face's flow. The C, coherent. Your mind stays clear, lucid, orderly inside. You have the full use of your intellect and reason. You can think logically and sensibly. Coherence. The fourth one, energized. Your mind is alert, active, dynamic, and animated. It has stamina. It has vitality. It's energized. And then the fifth, the S for stable. Your mind is balanced, calm, Steady, you have a sense of being solidly grounded and secure, stable. Right, so the faces flow. That's what we experience when our mind is optimally self-organized. We have the flexibility, adaptivity, coherence, energy. Your mind is flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. Now, there's a lot more to IPNB than I've already discussed. I'm going to get into these nine domains of integration. I'm basically going to list them and I'm going to address them really briefly. There's a lot more to this than I'm going to share with you. I'm going to give you a taste of how conceptually advanced the work in IPNB has become. Just these nine domains of integration. So integration of consciousness, bilateral integration, vertical integration, memory integration, narrative integration, state integration, interpersonal integration, temporal integration, and identity integration. These are the nine domains of integration. Consciousness, bilateral, vertical, memory, narrative, state, interpersonal, temporal, and identity. So, integration of consciousness. This is differentiating 
the knowing from the knowns of what we're aware of, right? It also implies the differentiation from what we know from what we don't know. And it implies that we have awareness of the body, of our mental and emotional world, of our relationships, and of the circumstances around us. That's openness to things as they are. That's the integration of consciousness. Bilateral integration means that the differentiated functions of the left and right hemisphere are connected. And remember that left hemisphere, that's the part of our brain that's more logical and linear, tends to be more literal, tends to be more verbal. And the right side of our brain is more creative, metaphoric, more nonlinear, more intuitive, more symbolic, more nonverbal. Right? So there's the sense that our brain lateralization is integrated left brain and right brain working in synchrony. The third is vertical integration. This is linking the body's signals and the lower neural regions of the brainstem and limbic area to the higher cortical regions. And so this implies that our entire nervous system from top to bottom is integrated, including the enteric nervous system, right? That's our, that's like the, the second brain in our gut, right? Our gut, our heart, our lungs, all of those have neural networks that want to communicate with our brain, right? Too many people are disconnected from awareness of their bodies, and this is actually reflected in the way that their nervous system functions. Right? So vertical integration. The next one is memory integration. And this includes linking the differentiated elements of implicit memory to the autobiographical and factual experience of explicit memory. Implicit memory is more like what we know in our bones. It's often not well articulated. It includes things like body memories, right? We need to be able to integrate our memory, especially when there's been trauma. Traumas become implicit memories, schemas. We get stuck in the past. In order to integrate memories, we must take these implicit memories and we must make them explicit so that we can think about them, so we can engage with them, and so we can weave them into the narratives of our lives, the stories of our lives in a coherent and meaningful way. Memory integration, really, really important. A central feature of the trauma therapy EMDR, for example. The fifth domain of integration is narrative integration, and that really focuses on making sense of memory and making sense of our experience so that we can find meaning in the events that have occurred in our lives, that we have a coherent story that we can tell that makes sense of our experience, narrative integration. Then the next, state integration. This respects the differentiated states of mind that make up the wide array of clusters of memory, thought, behavior, and action that are the nature of our multi-layered selves. Basically, IPNB argues that we have multiple selves sharing a body, right? And in IFS language, that's somewhat analogous to parts. They're thought of differently in IPNB in some ways, but there's the sense that we need to be able to respect these different states of mind, these different modes of operating, and have a way of integrating them that makes sense. That's state integration. And then there's interpersonal integration. This is honoring another person's inner experience and linking to that experience in a respectful communication. It involves nurturing. It is not about fusing. It's about being separate but near, being able to connect with another's inner experience in a way that's respectful, 
that has boundaries. And again, that sense of being separate but near. That's interpersonal integration. Temporal integration is the eighth domain of integration. And that involves the capacity to represent time or changes in life and reflect on the passage of time. Being able to make maps of our time, to connect our narratives to time, and also to be aware of our eventual death, to be able to grip on to that. Right? So the separation and differentiation of past, present, and future, and the integration of time into how we understand ourselves. And that leads us to the ninth domain of integration, which is identity. This is the sense of agency and coherence associated with feelings of belonging, right? The identity of a bodily self expands beyond our skin. We become connected in time. We become connected in place. We become connected to people. Dan Siegel refers to this sometimes as the integration of integration, right? Who we are and who we are in the broader world. Those nine domains of integration Consciousness, bilateral, vertical, memory, narrative, state, interpersonal, temporal, and identity. And he has a ways to help people address integration in, in all nine of these domains. Lots of different ways to help. Well, let's go on to this next concept of mindsight. I want to talk about mindsight. Mindsight is the ability to see the internal world of self and others. It permits integrative communication in which individuals are honored for their differences and compassionate connections are cultivated that link one mind to another. Right. So mindsight is all about being able to enter into my internal world and being able to enter into, in an invited way, into your internal world. And it has three components. Insight, empathy, and integration. Insight is reflecting with awareness by focusing your attention on the internal subjective world of one's own interior mental experience, including your feelings, your thoughts, your memories, your impulses, your desires, all that inner experience, being able to connect with that, being able to reflect on it, to be aware of it, and to be able to think about it, to be able to focus your attention on all of that stuff inside. That's insight. You have to be able to connect with yourself. The second thing is empathy. And this is sensing the inner experience of the other person within your own mind. So when I'm empathizing with you, I'm sensing your inner experience and I'm forming a mental map of what's going on inside of you. Again, this is where we go, we go back to feeling felt by the other person. This is where you know, there's the sense of, oh, the other person really gets me. The other person really understands me. And that's the foundation of a supportive relationship, empathy. So we have insight, we have empathy, and we have integration. And that integration is the differentiation and specialization and ultimately the linkage of systems, including the brain and interpersonal relationships. And if we don't get that, if we don't have that, inter that integration, remember that's where chaos or rigidity or both chaos and rigidity emerge. 
resulting in this mental dysfunction, right? When we're integrated, we've got this harmony, we've got this flexibility, we've got this adaptability, we've got this coherence, we've got this stability, we've got energy. That's that faces flow we talked about before. So mindsight, the definition of it on page 506 of the Developing Mind, third edition, is the ability to see the internal world of self and others, not just to observe behavior, It is the way we not only sense, but also shape energy and information flow within the triangle of mind, brain, and relationships, and move that flow toward integration. Using Mindsight, integration made visible is kindness and compassion. So using Mindsight, when that integration becomes visible, what that means is that you see kindness and compassion lived out. Integration made visible is kindness, it's compassion, it's well-being. Well, how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, there's lots of recommendations from in, from Dan Siegel in his interpersonal neurobiology. Lots of models, lots of acronyms. You can check out his website at drdansiegel.com, D-R-D-A-N-S-I-E-G-E-L.com. There's lots of resources there if IPNB resonates with you. Lots of books and courses and blogs and videos, all kinds of things. Most of it's free. He's a very good speaker. He's a very good presenter. He's a very good teacher. And he's done a lot to help parents raise very young children, informed by the science of IPNB, and to help parents and their adolescent children understand and connect with each other. He's got this whole concept. He's got this whole practice of the wheel of awareness, which is a reflective practice that integrates consciousness using the metaphor of a wheel in that wheel the hub represents the knowing of being aware and the rim contains the elements of the knowns from the first five senses to mental activity and also to things like emotions thoughts and memories right i'm not going to focus on that i'm not as familiar with that i'm going to focus on one resource he has today and that's one of many resources and it's called the healthy mind platter the healthy mind platter So what is that? Well, back in 2011, some of you may remember, the USDA changed from the food pyramid to a food plate. For 19 years, the food pyramid reigned supreme. But then back in 2011, it was deconstructed, it was taken away, and the USDA offered us a food plate. And this inspired David Rock and Daniel Siegel to design the Healthy Mind Platter. And the Healthy Mind Platter has these seven daily essential mental activities that are necessary for optimum mental health. These seven daily activities, they make up the, quote, mental nutrients, end quote, that's how they describe it, that your brain and your relationships and your mind need to function at their best. These are the seven critical daily activities. And by engaging every day in each of these activities, you promote integration in your life. You enable your brain to coordinate and balance its activities, right? So these essential mental activities strengthen your brain's internal connections and also your connections with other people and the world around you. So here is the list of the ingredients on the healthy mind platter. What are those elements? One, sleep time, two, physical time, three, downtime, four, focused time, five, play time, six, time in, and I'll explain what that is, and seven, 
connecting time. Sleep time, physical time, downtime, focus time, play time, time in, connecting time. Those are the components of the Healthy Mind Planner. And I'm going to draw from various resources in describing these, some by Dan Siegel, but also a video by Marie Hollowaychuk, and also a Psychotherapy Networker article called The Healthy Mind Platter, which was published in May of 2020. So we're going to go through these. We'll start with sleep time. When we give the brain the rest it needs, we consolidate learning and we recover from the experiences of the day. It's really important to get good sleep because sleep directly affects inflammation in the brain. When we get seven to nine hours of quality sleep, the active neurons, the toxins they secrete, that can all get cleaned up. And if we're not getting enough sleep, we're likely to have brain inflammation. And that leads to a decreased ability to focus, problems in memory, mood instability. It even impacts the way that we process calories. So good sleep helps us with memory consolidation, with memory processing. It helps us with learning. It helps us with task integration. It helps us with emotional regulation. It helps us with positivity. It helps us to have better insight, increases creativity, and improves problem solving. And most of you know that. When you don't sleep well, you're going to have deficits in your cognitive functioning. All right, so that's sleep time. Let's talk about physical time. What's happening in physical time? Well, when we move our bodies, especially aerobically, we strengthen the brain in so many ways, right? We maintain brain health and plasticity. Physical time helps us with learning and memory. It helps us to improve our cognitive and executive functioning. It enables us to focus even when there's distractions. Lots of benefits of physical time, reducing stress, anxiety, depression. We've known about this for a long time. Physical time. The third component of the mental health platter is downtime. And downtime is when we're just not focused. We, you know, we don't have a particular specific goal. We can kind of let our mind wander. We're just relaxing, kind of vegging out, right? Letting the brain have some time to recharge. This is the space where we're just chilling, not doing anything specific. And our minds actually need this. And that's in contradistinction to those moments when we're just getting distracted. That's not what we're talking about. This involves letting our minds wander, right? And we just, we're relaxing in that. So it allows our brains to recharge. It permits some integration of previous thoughts and experiences. And often when we're having some downtime, we get this generation of new insights because there's integration that's happening between the left and right hemispheres. That happened to me today. There was something I was thinking about for the next podcast and I didn't have a way of kind of working out how to do it. And I took a break and I was just sort of reflecting and thinking and sort of just having some downtime and boom, the answer came to me, right? So when we're struggling with a complex problem, you know, when you're starting to get anxious, when you're hitting the wall, it's okay to take a break. And that sudden insight often follows. Downtime is really, really critical. All right, so that's the third one. We have sleep time, physical time, downtime. Let's talk about focus time. And this is when we closely focus on tasks in a goal-oriented way, when we take on challenges that make deep connections in the brain. This is time where we spend focusing on some external project in a goal-oriented way. You're not multitasking. You're, you're thinking efficiently and effectively. You've limited distractions. You're really focusing on one thing at a time. 
it might be like, I'm going to listen to this podcast. I'm going to be really focused on it. I'm not going to be distracted by the news or anything else. And when we focus our attention like this, we release substances in our brains, including BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor that enhances brain growth. When we have that really laser-like focused attention, we learn more, we remember more, and in fact, we enjoy the experience more because it can come with this feeling of success, with this experience of mastery, because we were really able to accomplish something, to do something new. So focus time helps our brain secrete chemicals to allow the neurons which are firing to strengthen their connections to one another. This helps your attention and concentration. It helps to develop your prefrontal cortex, and it sharpens and clarifies your mind. And Cal Newport, an author that I really like, Cal Newport, his book, Deep Work, taught me so much about this component of the healthy mind platter, focus time. I highly recommend that book if you really want to learn how to deeply engage with your mind in your work. There's lots of practical tips that have helped me a lot, including in producing this podcast. So Kelp Newport's book, Deep Work. It also talks about the other kinds of experiences on the platter that you need as well for a healthy mind. That's focus time. So the next one, the fifth one, playtime. This is when we allow ourselves to be spontaneous, creative, where we can enjoy novel experiences. When we're doing those things, we're making new connections in the brain. Now, this doesn't necessarily refer to sports, but it's to the things that allow you to laugh, to be spontaneous, to suspend judgments, not to be worried about the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it. The idea here is to engage in an activity possibly with others, in which the enjoyment and the creative unfolding of the moment is what is important. And too often, we adults, we lose our sense of playfulness. Now, children, they play naturally. You know, they really know how to engage in this sort of thing. We lose some of that in in adolescence oftenhood, and by adulthood, we could be like not playing at all. So, It's a time to forget about work or other commitments. It's time to be social in an unstructured way so that there can be flexible emotional responses to unexpected events. And playing stimulates dopamine release, which again helps to establish new neuronal pathways in the brain. All right, so that's playtime. Number six, time in. We need to get into this one a little bit more um, deliberately because the name isn't so obvious as the other ones. Time in this domain of integration. What are we talking about? And this is when we're quietly reflecting internally. When we're focusing on our sensations, our images, the feelings we have, our thoughts. When we're doing that quiet reflection internally, we're helping our brain to integrate better. And this is the time that you may already spend in formal mindfulness practice. Could be uh, when you're doing your parts journaling, those kinds of things, opening awareness, cultivating kind intentions. Some people experience this obviously in prayer. There's a focus on sensations, images, feelings, thoughts in the present moment. And there's an acceptance of the process rather than just focusing on the content. And when we're engaged in that time in, 
it balances our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. This leads to improved attention and more flexible perspectives about life, better control of our emotions, better stress management, and it helps us to improve compassion and, and empathy toward our own selves and towards others. So that's the time in. Number seven is connecting time. And this is when we connect with other people. And ideally, we're doing this in person. When we take the time to appreciate the way that we connect with the natural world around us, the people, the places, nature. When we do that, we activate and reinforce the brain's relational circuitry. This is an intentional connection with others. And it has a buffering effect on stress. It helps us to have a positive outlook. It reinforces secure attachments. It can actually help us to restore ourselves in times of stress. So it's all about planning outings and date nights, getting these activities into your daily routine, making sure personal connections are maintained. That's connecting time. Those are the seven components of the healthy mind platter. Sleep time, physical time, downtime, focus time, play time, time in, and connecting time. All right, well, some of you may be asking, okay, this is all interesting. How do we connect interpersonal neurobiology with Catholicism, right? How do we do that? Well, I'm in this six-month intensive course with Dan Siegel right now. It's his comprehensive interpersonal neuro neurobiology course. And as part of that course, we have these Q&A sessions. And I've been really interested in how open the IPNB model might be to Catholicism. I wanted to ask Dan Siegel his thoughts about that. Remember, IPNB being this consilient framework, it draws from so many disciplines, and not just scientific ones, right? But any discipline with a rigorous approach to learning. Remember in that list, there were the liberal arts, there was poetry, there was even the psychology of religion, contemplative traditions. And remember, I like Dan Siegel. I think he's very approachable, very open, very receptive. I have a deep sense that he has a big heart. He's got a lot of concern about us and our human condition, a genuine compassion for his neighbor. This is not just an academic figure kind of operating in some kind of vacuum, some kind of intellectual vacuum. No, he's a real live human being, right? So I asked him. I sent him this question because you can submit questions to these Q&As and he'll answer them there. And if he doesn't get to them, then he will write you a response. And so he, I asked this question and he wrote a response. So the question is this, how does the integrative multidisciplinary framework of IPNB, which draws from the findings of so many fields, consider the wisdom based on divine revelation that revealed religions such as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam claim to offer about human well-being to their followers? Or is that way of, quote, knowing, end quote, considered unscientific or not rigorous and therefore not invited into the IPNB framework? Right? So that's what I was asking him. You know, do, can the IPNB framework include that which is given to us by God in revealed religions. Is there a place for that kind of knowing, for that kind of information, you know, for divine revelation, or is there no seat for that kind of information at the IPNB table? 
And he responded. I'll read this. I'll read this entire response. It was kind of lengthy, but I want to give it to you all so that you have the entire context. So he wrote in response, thank you for the question, Peter. Initially, IPNB was created through the weaving of Western-based academic disciplines from math and physics to biology and psychology to to sociology and anthropology. It began with an effort to ask, what is the mind and how are the mind and brain related to one another? As the notion of consilience later became clear, the approach broadened to include any disciplined way of understanding the nature of reality. For that reason, systematic, disciplined ways of exploring reality, questioning what emerges, and then reconsidering what is found in an attempt to build a broad framework for understanding that includes the ancient wisdom traditions of indigenous knowledge and contemplative insights. In meeting with religious leaders from the faiths you have mentioned, the plane of possibility view as generator of diversity seems to fit with the deepest aspects of their teachings, part of what Aldous Huxley and Houston Smith might have referred to as perennial wisdom. I have also met with some teachers, not leaders, but local teachers in various faiths who say their view is the only true view and that to try to find a consilience across ways of knowing from various religions and from science is an assault on their unique and privileged, quote, knowing of what the truth is, end quote. In this case, that mental stance of absolute belief in the veracity of their perspective is not part of a consilient mindset, and so it is difficult to see how, though their views would be welcome to be examined, not just accepted because the individual believes them to be true, people with such a viewpoint would collaborate in looking for common ground. I hope this response makes sense. Okay. So that was a lot to try to take in. You can see how conceptually dense Dan Siegel is, even in responding to a question like this. So let's just review the response. He said that in meeting with religious leaders, and I had mentioned Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, he said in meeting with religious leaders from these faiths, the plane of possibility view as the generator of diversity seems to fit with the deepest aspects of their teachings. Or in other words, he's saying that, yeah, it looks like it fits in some ways with how we understand reality to be in Christianity or in Judaism or in Islam. But he's also saying that if a person clings to the certainty that what was revealed is true and there's no room for questioning it or examining it, if, quote, the mental stance of absolute belief in the veracity of their perspective is there, right, then it's difficult to see how they can engage in a conciliant framework. All right, and so I thought his response was gracious. I appreciate his directness and his honesty. I was not surprised by the content. The way I interpret this is that there's not room in IPNB from Dan Siegel's point of view for one to be Catholic and to hold on to the core tenets of the faith without questioning them, right? And and still participate in this consilient framework where you're searching for common ground. No revealed religion's tenets could be included because they're not open to being challenged, questions, questioned, and discarded if they don't seem to line up with the findings of the other disciplines. That's one of Dan Siegel's non-negotiable principles for IPNB. So I would argue that his consilient framework doesn't draw from all the available knowledge. Now, he never claimed that it did, right? 
Dan Siegel and I disagree about epistemology. That's how you know things. For him, divine revelation is not a valid source, is not a valid source of knowing that can inform IPNB if it can't be questioned and discarded. For me, divine revelation is not only essential, it's the starting point. Divine revelation is the reference point, like the North Star. And that's likely to lead to disagreements between Dan Siegel and me about metaphysics. But I don't ignore the valuable work of DNA discoverers James Watson and Francis Crick, who described the beauty of the double helix structure of DNA. I don't ignore their work or discount it because both Watson and Crick displayed intense anti-Catholic bigotry. And so I'm certainly not going to ignore the really valuable work of Dan Siegel and IPNB. Let's draw the good from it. Let's draw the good from it. And I've not seen anything that condemns or criticizes Catholicism from Dan Siegel. He's not Catholic. I don't expect him to embrace the church's teaching. But let's not be afraid of the work of IPNB and other secular approaches. Let's conform those findings to what we already know to be true by faith. So the upshot of all of this, for those that really want to ground human formation and psychology in a Catholic understanding of the human person, is for us Catholics to not only be Catholic with a capital C, but also to be Catholic with a small c. Catholic with a small c meaning universal. We find the good in all these secular approaches and we harmonize that good with our faith, not the other way around. We don't harmonize our faith with what these other disciplines say. And there's no tension between authentic science and the faith. This is straight from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 159, which reads as follows. Quote, Though faith is above reason, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason. Since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind, God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Consequently, methodical research in all branches of knowledge, provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never conflict with the faith because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same God. The humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God, in spite of himself, for it is God, the conserver of all things, who made them what they are. All right, and I think that's what's going on with Dan Siegel here, right? But this is where I'm here to help you. I'm here to take the best of secular approaches to science like IPNB and ground them in an, in an authentic Catholic understanding of the human person. That's what I'm all about. That's what this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, is all about. That's what Souls and Hearts is all about. So I accept the authority of the Catholic Church to teach definitively in the areas of faith and morals. That's my starting point. I hold those truths to be indeed true. I'm open to the possibility and potential that I have for misunderstanding some of those truths. I have misunderstood some of those truths before, misinterpreted them, and I may well be misunderstanding some of those truths now. But one main reason for divine revelation is to show us those truths that we could have never figured out using the light of human reason alone. I really do believe that the reason our Lord Jesus Christ came at the moment he did in human history was because the Greeks had gotten about as far as natural reason would take them in philosophy, and the Romans had gotten about as far as natural reason would take them in law. So, my mission, my calling, is to bring to you the best of psychological and human formation resources firmly rooted in a Catholic anthropology. And this is entirely consistent with the teaching of the church as expressed in Vatican II in paragraph 62 of the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, where it reads, quote, in pastoral care, 
sufficient use should be made not only of theological principles, but also of the findings of secular sciences, especially psychology and sociology. In this way, the faithful will be brought to a purer and more mature living of the faith. End quote. Okay. I'm super excited about next month's episode. That's going to be episode 93 coming out on May 2nd, 2022, where I will be offering you three experiential exercises to integrate what we've been learning in episode 89 on polyvagal theory, episode 90 on positive psychology, psychodynamic psychotherapy, and internal family systems, and this current episode, number 92, on interpersonal neurobiology. I'm gonna be taking all these secular approaches, I'm gonna be drawing from them in these experiential exercises next time to really help you know yourself better, to understand your needs, and to find where you may have internal disconnects, where you may lack integration. And also, I'm gonna help you get some direction on what the next steps are in those experiential exercises. So look for that on Monday, May 2nd, If you're not getting my weekly emails, you should sign up. I've been doing a whole series of weekly emails. They come out on Wednesday. We've been looking at enemies, enemies from a psychological and spiritual perspective, right? What makes an enemy? How do we connect with our enemies? Or how do we relate with our enemies? How do we understand enemies, right? From both a psychological and a spiritual perspective informed by the Catholic Church. So we'll be continuing with that series on enemies this coming Wednesday, sign up soulsandhearts.com and you can click on that little box that says, you know, get Dr. Peter's weekly email reflections, right? Secondly, if you haven't prayed our litanies of the hearts, I really recommend that you do that. Really excited to just have released these litanies of the heart. Last episode, episode 92 was all about the litany of the closed heart, the litany of the fearful heart and the litany of the wounded heart. So much great feedback we've been getting from people about these litanies. Check those out, soulsandhearts.com backslash L-I-T. Or if you just go to soulsandhearts.com, you'll see a little litanies tab at the top. Click on that. You'll see our litanies of the heart. So much great feedback about people that are experiencing things differently in their prayer because they're praying these litanies. Remember, you are a listener to this podcast, and in that sense, you are with me And I am also with you. You can call me on my cell phone any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern time for my regular conversation hours. I've set that time aside for you. 317-567-9594. Give me a call. 317-567-9594. We can talk about anything that comes up on the podcast, right? And if you really like this podcast, if you're finding it to be of great benefit to you, I want you to seriously consider the Resilient Catholics community. The waiting list is open for the Resilient Catholics community, the RCC, at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC for our June 2022 enrollment. There's so much information there. There's videos. The RCC is all about loving with your whole heart, about loving with all of your being. It's about getting over all the natural level issues that hold you back from being loved and from loving God and others, right? So if you are into this podcast, if you really like the way that I conceptualize the human person, if you like talking about integration, human formation, if you want many more experiential exercises to help you be more resilient, to help you improve your capacity to connect with others, to enter into their internal worlds and to love them, the RCC is designed for you, right? Those of you that want a deep, personal, intimate relationship with God and with Mary, you want a real human 
a real human connection, a real close connection, authentic intimacy. That's what we're going for in the RCC. We take people that are willing to make sacrifices in time and effort and money and humility and courage. We want people that are that are striving to become saints, right? Who are willing to be pioneers on this cutting edge of this adventure in human formation. That's where I'm spending a lot of time. That's where I'm spending a lot of my energy right now is with the RCC. So go to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC and register for the June waitlist. I'd love to be on this journey with you. And with that, we're going to bring this to a close. Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots, pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.